Welcome to episode 25 of History of the Marine Corps, the Penobscot Expedition, part 1. During our last episode, we went into a little more detail about the Wheeling Expedition and discussed some of the hardships and challenges Wheeling and the Marines are facing with the Spanish and the British. This episode is the beginning of the Penobscot Expedition. This battle is intense. We'll take a look at the events leading up to the clash, as well as the preparation by the American and British forces. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The controversy that surrounded Hopkins and Olney, the two naval captains suspended for intimidating and threatening their crew into being designated as prize agents, impacted the readiness of the Continental Navy. Marine Captain Richard Palms got caught up in the drama, and he was eventually released from duty on the Warren. The Navy Board appointed the former Marine Captain of the Alfred, Captain John Welsh, to take Palms' place as the senior Marine on the Warren. William Hamilton was commissioned as the Marine Lieutenant. The two men knew each other and served on the Alfred together. They were also taken prisoner of war and were cellmates in Fort in prison. The two new Marine officers started to recruit, but inherited the same issues everyone had. It was challenging to find volunteers. Around the same time of this controversy, American ships were returning to Boston from their independent missions. As each ship pulled into port, they were assessed for serviceability and were given needed repairs, supplies, and staff to prepare for their next task. The General Gates was one of the first vessels to return to Boston, and it was determined that the extent of her damages wasn't worth repairing. She was sold, and Marine Lieutenant Richard McClure lost command of his crew. The same day, the frigates Providence and Boston, along with the sloop Providence, headed out to sea to recruit more men. Recruitment responsibility mainly fell on Captain Seth Baxter's shoulders. Every officer combed local cities for qualified recruits, sometimes taking them from the Continental Army. Army officers complained about this practice and stated that it was impractical if Marine officers could simply take recruits from them. Marine Lieutenant William Cooper was recruited on March 28th and received orders to serve on the Boston. Not much is known about Cooper, but he may have been the brother of Judith Cooper, who married Marine Captain Matthew Park on August 15, 1781. Some historians believe that Matthew Park was influential in convincing Cooper into serving in the Marines. Cooper was successful with finding recruits, and with his help, Baxter was able to crew the two frigates by the beginning of April. The Continental Navy and Continental Marines were proving themselves during enemy encounters, and morale was high for a lot of sailors and Marines. That will change later in the year when they embark on one of the most massive and most devastating naval expeditions during the American Revolution. The two frigates and the sloop were commanded by the Massachusetts Council to head out to sea and cruise the bay for 10 days. In previous episodes, we talked about the Providence, but I failed to clarify that there are two vessels with the same name. A few battles are coming up, and it might help to understand the difference. The original Providence was a sloop, originally named the Katy, 
It was chartered from John Brown of Providence, Rhode Island on June 15, 1775, and outfitted for war. We briefly discussed the background of the sloop Providence during episode 17, the Marine you've never heard of in the Americans surrender their first ship. The frigate Providence was built by Sylvester Bowes in Providence, Rhode Island, and it was launched in May 1776. The frigate Providence was one of the new 13 frigates constructed strictly for the American Revolution. Hopefully this eliminated a little confusion, but if you need further clarification, you could take a look at our relationship map on historyofthemarinecorps.com. There is more detail on the two ships, and a list of episodes we discuss each vessel can be found in the description section. Back to the three ships. Their mission was to search and destroy enemy cruisers along the coast. The council ordered Frigate Providence to return in a few days, but Sloop Providence and the Boston were to stay in the bay until the mission was completed. Once successful, the two ships will sail to the Delaware Bay and wait for further instructions by the Marine Committee. The three ships sailed, but they didn't encounter enemy ships in the bay. After a few days, the frigate Providence came back to Boston and awaited her next orders. The frigate Boston sailed to Philadelphia after her 10 days while the sloop Providence hung around New York. On May 7th, the sloop Providence spotted an enemy vessel off Sandy Hook. She fired multiple broadsides at the British ship, and Continental Marines would help out with precise musket fire. After a tenacious battle, the American sloop captured the Diligent, a British 12-gun brig. Eight enemies were killed and ten wounded. The Providence had two dead and twelve wounded. One of the men who died during battle was Marine Lieutenant John Chilton. The Diligent was returned to Boston, where she was purchased by the Navy Board for the Continental Navy for 26,000 pounds which was an outrageous price at the time. While the Diligent was being repaired, the Boston arrived in Philadelphia and was joined by a newly built frigate from Connecticut, the Confederacy. If you've been following this series from the beginning, it'll probably come as no surprise that the captain of the Confederacy had a pretty hard time recruiting sailors to serve. Marine Captain Joseph Hardy faced similar challenges in recruiting Marines, but that wasn't his biggest headache. The Marines on board the Confederacy were lacking weapons, ammunitions, and supplies. Hardy asked for muskets, cartouche boxes, flints, musket balls, all available empty cartridges so they could fill, thread, and a set of drum and fifes. He received his supplies by the middle of May, and the Confederacy left New London, Connecticut, and headed towards the Delaware Capes. She met up with the Boston and the two ships were ordered to cruise along the coast between New Jersey and North Carolina. They would search for enemy ships and either capture, sink, or destroy any they encounter. They were also instructed to protect any American merchantmen and escort them to port. The Marine Committee's vision was for the two ships to cruise these waters for three weeks. The mission was successful, and the two frigates captured three British ships. Similar tasks would take place in the upcoming weeks, and the Continental Navy would be successful in this operation as well. The Dean and the Boston captured eight ships, and Captain Whipple's fleet took around ten ships. The success was so significant that everyone on the vessel, including Navy and Marine privates, received a generous share of the proceeds. As mentioned at the beginning of this episode, 
The success of the Continental Navy was apparent, and the morale was high for sailors and marines participating in the attacks. America's success was starting to take its toll on the British, impacting their logistics and supplies to the troops in the colonies. The American military and privateers were becoming experts in seizing British ships sailing between New York and what is now the country of Canada. Constant attacks from the Americans compelled the British to attach warships to shipping convoys for protection. As we covered in previous episodes, the British were already spread thin and using ships to help protect supply vessels opened up further vulnerabilities. The British realized this weakness, and they agreed that a protected port was needed in America to provide a closer resupply and repair point. It would also provide a faster reaction time to nearby British ships that needed help. The British had their eyes on the coast of Maine for their port. There were multiple reasons for this location. One, it was between Nova Scotia and New York, which is where many of the attacks were happening. Two, Maine has many large river mouths along its coastline. Three, Maine had a lot of British loyalists. And four, the colonies were using the Maine forest to gather lumber for their ships, firewood, and other construction. There was also an idea floating around about developing a new settlement in Maine for British loyalist refugees. The new colony would sit between Penobscot and St. Croix River and be referred to as New Ireland. London passed down their orders to the commander of military forces in Nova Scotia, Brigadier General Francis McLean. The command was specific on where McLean should build this new colony, and he was instructed to establish on the Penobscot River. A force of 500 men was suggested, but the decision was ultimately left up to McLean. McLean initially followed the recommendation and moved 400 men from the 74th Regiment and 100 men from the King's Orange Rangers to the Penobscot River, but after some thought, he decided to raise the numbers. He requested an additional 40 men from the 74th and another 100 from the Rangers. However, the Rangers couldn't provide that many men, so McLean took 200 men from his own regiment. McLean had 640 men on shore and requested British naval forces to protect the river. On June 12, 1779, British vessels Blonde, North, Nautilus, Albany, and the Hope arrived in Penobscot Bay. The next three days were spent surveying the area for the best place to build a fort. He decided on a peninsula on the Bagadus River. The British quickly began construction of the fort. It took about a week and a half to unload all of the ships and move supplies to their destination. Once supplies were delivered, McLean and the convoy argued about where the fleet will travel to next. McLean wanted the ships to stay in Penobscot, but the convoy wanted to retire all vessels except for the Albany. While this debate was happening, the British learned that multiple American frigates might be headed towards Halifax. With most ships in Penobscot, Halifax was defenseless. At the end of the day, the Hope was sent south with messages to the British commander in New York. The Blonde headed towards Halifax, and the Albany, North, and Nautilus stayed with McLean. The British's plans didn't stay secret for long. The Massachusetts Bay Council was the first to receive word about the British landing. 
Reverend John Murray sent a letter dated June 18, 1779, estimating that an army between 800 and 1,500 men landed in Maine. The next day, a second letter was received by Brigadier General Charles Cushing of the Massachusetts Militia. For the next several days, the Massachusetts Bay Council would receive multiple messages stating the same thing. At the time, it wasn't clear what the British were doing, but the Americans understood that it was something big. Since the British were nearby and Massachusetts trade and privateering were at risk, Boston took the lead for action. The Council of Massachusetts Bay reached out to the Navy Board and asked for help with the British. They agreed to help and recommended Continental ships be assigned. The Navy Board started to prepare the Warren, the Sloop Providence, and the Diligent to help out. All ships were short-staffed, and help was needed to recruit men for this mission. The Warren needed 100 men alone. On June 29th, a small committee was formed to notify New Hampshire about the recruitment taking place, and requested they provide help for this cause. New Hampshire sent the Hampton, a 20-gun privateer ship, to help out. The Massachusetts Navy supplied three ships, the Tyrannicide, Hazard, and the Active. In addition to these seven ships, 12 privateers were also hired by the state to help with the British. There was also another 20 transport ships assigned to the mission. I won't go into the privateer and transport vessels since they aren't central to the story, but if you're interested, I'll include a list on historyofthemarinecorps.com under this episode. The strategy was to supplement Continental and State Marines with up to 1,500 militiamen. Again, they would fall short with recruiting, and the 433 that did volunteer weren't the most impressive. Adjutant General Jeremiah Hill stated, quote, Some sent boys, old men, and invalids. Unquote. Other militias fell short as well, and only 873 of the anticipated 1,500 slots were fulfilled. The Americans had a dilemma. If they continued to recruit and wait to attack until they had 1,500 men, the British might have time to complete the construction of their fort. They had to strike now with the men they had, or risk the British completing development of their defenses. It was a tough call, but the decision was made to advance on the British while some officers stayed behind, continued recruiting, and sent the new recruits to Bagaduce as quickly as possible. On July 24th, the Continental Fleet set sail and anchored off the mouth of the Penobscot Bay the same night. The Tyrannicide and the Hazard were instructed to serve as scout vessels, and they led the fleet as they approached their destination. Two small boats from the Hazard were sent to shore to speak with any locals and gather potential intelligence about the British. The first boat returned with three locals, and the second boat came back with Captain Mitchell, a resident of Belfast and apparently very knowledgeable of the area. The fleet found this information valuable and used the intelligence to make their move on the British. As day broke on July 25th, the Continental Navy advanced towards Bagaduce. Fleet Commander Commodore Dudley Saltonstall ordered the diligent to go ahead of the rest of the fleet and conduct a survey of the area. As the diligent advanced towards the shore, three men ran out to the water, waving and calling the American ship. 
Lieutenant Brown of the Diligence spotted the three men and thought this might be a trap. He armed a group of men, boarded them on a small boat, and sent them to shore. The three men provided some valuable information to the Diligent. One of them was near the British fort, and he estimated the strength to be between 450 and 500 men. He also stated the British were building a fort, but it wasn't even half completed. The three men boarded the small boat and were transported to the Warren where they spoke to Saltonstall about their information. Brown suggested to Commodore Saltonstall that the fleet should prepare to move towards the British as soon as possible. With the fort half completed, Brown thought this was the best time to attack, and he thought the fort could be quickly taken. However, Saltonstall disagreed with Brown. He was cautious and stated that only a madman would advance towards the fort without further exploration and confirmation of the situation. This was another tough situation to be in. On the one hand, Brown's plan of attacking the British as soon as possible would minimize the number of defenses that could be prepared. On the other hand, Saltonstall was right to assume additional defenses were already in place. Sending the fleet in now might be harmful to the crew, the ships, and the mission. Unbeknownst to the Americans, the west side of the peninsula had a steep cliff that would be very difficult to climb. The south was fortified with cannons, and most other avenues couldn't be traveled by all ships due to rough terrain. An assault plan was created while the ships were on their way to Bagadus, but it was not sufficient, and it didn't account for all obstacles. I'll post the entire plan on historyofthemarinecorps.com for you to take a look. It's a very short read, but to summarize, Flat-bottom boats would be deployed as soon as the fleet hits the rendezvous point, and they would head to shore. Once on land, they would secure the area, wait for reinforcements, which include one field piece, and protect the shore. By 1500 on July 25th, the American fleet arrived off the mouth of the river. The British warships formed a line across the entrance, providing protection to the fort and the residents on shore. Marine Sergeant Thomas Philbrook was on surveillance, and he provided some information about the fort. He said it was, quote, rather rough looking, built with logs and dirt, and not more than three or three and a half feet high, which our long-legged militiamen would have straddled over without much difficulty, unquote. However, the Americans were within view, and the British took this opportunity to fortify the fort and strengthen defenses quickly. Walls were raised and two additional cannons were installed to help with the firepower. The British also closed the lines, added additional defenses, and stripped the cannons from the starboard side of their ships. The cannons were placed on the shore on nearby islands and on peninsulas. Since portside cannons were facing Americans, cannons on the starboard side didn't serve a purpose, so removing and arranging the cannons to be used against the approaching fleet would be helpful and provide additional land support. This would be a harsh environment to defend against. Commodore Saltonstall and his fleet didn't rush into battle. To prepare for the main attack, which would take place three days later on July 28th, Saltonstall sent multiple probing ships towards the British to understand British defenses. For the next few days, Americans would sail towards the British, volleys would be exchanged, and the American ships would fall back with the rest of the fleet. Amphibious landings were also tested out during the probes, 
but due to the weather, weren't successful. On July 26th, the two sides exchanged fire all day, but very little damage was done. The goal was to get a feel for tactics and firepower used by their opponent, so causing damage wasn't necessarily the goal of this exchange. Saltonstall and the Marines attempted another amphibious landing the night on the 26th. This time they were successful, and the landing party arrived on Banks Island. After a successful landing, the Council of War gathered and discussed next steps. They concluded that Marines under Captain Welsh would land and take possession of the island at the entrance of the river. A continental vessel would support the Marines, however a British flag would be hoisted to divert the attention of the enemy. Once the Marines secure the island, they will head up the river, land on the other side of the peninsula, and prepare for further operations. Three ships would help the Marines with their mission, the Providence, Pilus, and the Defense. It's not entirely clear how many Marines would participate in this landing. Marine Sergeant Thomas Philbrook, one of the Marines on the landing party, stated that he and 30 Marines landed from the Providence, with the same amount from one of the American brigs. It's unclear which brig Philbrook was referring to. The three ships that helped with the attack weren't brigs, so it's assumed that he meant the active, hazard, or the tyrannicide. The Marines embarked on their mission and started to advance towards the island. Twenty British Royal Marines were on land when the attack began. When they saw the boats heading to shore, they retreated, leaving four light artillery pieces. The Continental Marines didn't even know there were British Marines present. Instead of using the four artillery pieces left behind, Americans spent the night setting up three field pieces two 18-pounders, and one 12-pound cannon. The landing was successful, and Marines were able to take the island without any casualties or resistance. The Marines fired one of their cannons the following morning, assuming the British were unaware of their landing. The British fired around as well, but this shot landed near the Americans, and killed two and injured three others. The British would fire another round the following morning, this time aimed at a boat carrying the commander of the York County Militia and two other men. The shot was accurate and all three men were killed. The main landing party headed towards the next part of their mission, but left behind Marines from the Palace and the Providence who manned the artillery. The three ships stayed near the Marines on shore and provided defense for the exposed party. Securing the site was paramount if the Americans wanted to win this battle. The Marines did a great job of protecting the island and stopping the British from retaking control. This forced the British military to move their men and ships up the bay to avoid being hit by artillery fire. Despite this success, Continental Army and Navy commanders started to disagree about what British unit to attack next. The Army commanders felt that an attack on the ships would be the best next steps, since the Americans had the superior numbers. Once the threat of the British Navy was removed from the harbor, the landing party could head to shore without facing cannon fire from British ships. Also, the landing site near the port had a gentle slope which would make amphibious landings a lot easier. The Navy had a different idea, and Salt and Stahl didn't want to expose the American fleet to the cannons on land and mounted on the fort. 
The Navy wanted the Marines and Army to go in first, overrun the fort, and then the American fleet would come in and destroy the British Navy. This approach had its faults. There wasn't a landing zone with an easy path to the fort. The Army and Marines would have to climb steep cliffs, slowly organize at the top of those cliffs, and then head towards the target. This would give the British plenty of time to prepare. Once the British were on site, it would be like shooting fish in a barrel. Next time, we'll discuss who will win the argument and cover how the Americans will prepare for one of the most massive naval expeditions during the American Revolution. Join us next week as we dig deeper into the Penobscot Expedition. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through HistoryOfTheMarineCorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.